continue with our series through the book of Philippians tonight. And let's read once again Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Word of God in Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now these last four verses of the chapter are the 
text for our sermon tonight. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which ye saw in me, now here to be in me. We read the word of God that far, and again it's those last four verses that are the text for our sermon tonight. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the preceding verses, verses 12 through 26 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul described to the Philippians his present circumstances as he was imprisoned in Rome. And in doing so, the Apostle was not being self-centered, but the focus was still on the Philippians. He wanted to alleviate any fears or worries that they had about his situation in Rome. And in addition, he writes there of his situation as an implied instruction to those saints. They were facing similar circumstances to what he was in, so that by describing his response, he was helping them as to the way in which they were to respond. Having set forth his own circumstances, now beginning in our text, and what follows in much of chapter 2 is a description of the situation in Philippi. Verses of our text serve as a kind of summary statement of much of what is to come in the rest of the book of Philippians. The issues that were plaguing that church and that needed to be addressed and that will be spelled out in more detail in the following chapters is summarized here at the end of chapter 1. The summary of those issues could be put this way. They were facing internal tensions and external pressures. Internally, There were troubles in the church. It had not come yet to open schism, but there were underlying divisions and troubles that were plaguing the congregation. And then in addition to that, from outside, externally, there was the ongoing opposition and the persecution that they were facing from the unbelieving in the city. Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, applies the gospel to the needs of that congregation. The gospel frees those saints from selfishness and pride and all that does 
harm to the unity of the church. The gospel frees from the fear of men and the fear of death. The gospel supplies unity in humility, in courage, in conviction, stand for the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This text is fitting for both of the occasions of our service tonight. The occasions for our service tonight is the confessions of faith of these two young women in our congregation. And the Word of God tonight serves as an encouragement to them to continue on, to persevere in a life of godliness that's consistent with the gospel of grace that they know and they've confessed here tonight. The other occasion for our service tonight is that it's preparatory to our partaking of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. And the Word of God fits here for that as well. It gives us opportunity to examine our lives in the light of this Word of God as to whether we are living in our life consistent with the gospel of grace that we know and we love. Consider this Word of God tonight under the theme, Conduct Consistent with the Gospel. First, let's consider gospel conduct. Secondly, gospel unity. And then thirdly, gospel courage. The text begins with an exhortation. At the beginning of verse 27, the Apostle Paul exhorts the saints in Philippi, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. As we'll see, the idea there is that your conduct has to be consistent with, has to be in harmony with the gospel of Christ. And so to understand conduct that's consistent with the gospel, we first have to understand something about the gospel. Gospel, of course, refers to good news. And this good news, according to the text, is the good news of Christ. To sum up what the gospel is, it's summed up in this one word. It's Christ. So that when we say gospel, in effect we're saying Christ. Christ is the gospel. The good news is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His person and in His work. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who's come into this world and taken upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh, so that He who remains truly God is also now truly man. The gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, having come in our flesh, suffered His whole life long as He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. The Gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for the sins of His people at the cross. By His death has made payment in full. The good news of the Gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried to pay for the sins of His people is now risen again from 
the dead as the victor over sin and death and the grave. That's the gospel put in its simplest form, we might say. The gospel is Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. This is the heart of the good news that is and must be proclaimed. Good news includes the blessings of salvation that are ours in Jesus Christ. And there are the two main primary benefits of salvation that are ours in Christ. There's a double benefit, both our justification and our sanctification. The good news is that Jesus Christ has suffered and redeemed His people at the cross. And the good news is that by His Spirit, He applies those blessings of salvation which He's earned for us by the work of His Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we are justified. Our sins are forgiven and we're declared to be righteous before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have right standing with God. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we're also delivered from sin's filth and pollution. And we're sanctified and made holy. That too belongs to The good news of the gospel that for the sake of Jesus Christ, blessed with the blessings of salvation, we're justified and we're sanctified. There's much more that could be said about the gospel and the content of the gospel. But the text indicates especially one thing, one important aspect of the gospel. It's indicated in verse 27 by that word conversation. And children don't understand there the word conversation to be referring to speech. Not referring to speech, but that word conversation refers to conduct, the way in which a person lives. In the New Testament, there's a certain word for conduct that's often used. But that's not the word that's used here. There's a a unique, rarely used word that's used in the text here that refers to the conduct of citizenship. How one behaves as a citizen. That's not referring, first of all, to their earthly citizenship. But the apostle uses that word Because he's drawing on that idea of earthly citizenship. If you recall from the very beginning of our series on Philippians, it was noted that that city had a special status in the Roman Empire. Because Octavian, later Caesar Augustus, had won a great battle around there, he had granted citizenship to the people of that city, which was a special honor that Not all had. And the Philippians were very proud of being Roman citizens with all of the the privileges that came with that. The Apostle is saying 
as thankful as you are of having that earthly citizenship, remember that you have a higher and a greater citizenship, which is citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. He uses that same word and that same idea later in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, For our conversation, again, our conduct as citizens, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His point there is we have a, a better, a heavenly citizenship. When the apostle speaks of the gospel here, what's included in that is the good news of our deliverance out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of slavery to Satan and bondage to sin, and we've been delivered unto the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light and joy and life, where we live in the joyful freedom of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. By the gracious work of God, we've been delivered out of the darkness and into the light, and we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom of Christ. That's good news for our weary souls. Good news is a comfort to us in that we have salvation. We have a place in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two who made confession of faith tonight testified by their confession that they know, they believe the truth of the gospel. They know that not only intellectually so that they can speak about the truths of the gospel, but they know and believe that this is the good news to their soul, that they know and believe and are confident they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. They know and believe and are confident they belong to that kingdom of light and life. That good news something that we hear proclaimed in the gospel and is also signified and sealed to us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Next Sunday, the Lord willing, as we gather together around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is signified and sealed to our souls the truth of the gospel. There's sealed to our souls to the confirming and the strengthening of our faith. We belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to His heavenly kingdom. And certainly as we partake of those earthly elements, so certain are we that we partake of Christ, partake of the blessings of salvation that He has earned for us. Gospel is a comfort to our souls. It's also what motivates us to live a holy, godly life. 
The life of the Christian who knows and is confident of and comforted by the gospel is a life lived out of the gospel and in harmony with the gospel. The text says, literally, let your conduct as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that idea of a walk worthy of the gospel is language that the Apostle Paul uses frequently. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, for example, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Colossians 1, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. To walk worthy of the gospel does not mean that we live in such a way that makes us worthy of the gospel. If that's the understanding, then we've turned the gospel into the law. The sense is not that we walk in such a way that we make ourselves worthy of the gospel, but the sense is live in such a way that is consistent with the gospel. Your conduct ought to be in harmony with, it ought to to match with the good news of the gospel that you know and confess. Your walk of life ought to show how you hold the gospel in esteem, how dear and precious that is to your own soul because the gospel is so worthy to us, so lovely, we live in a way that harmonizes with it. The apostle adds, and what follows in verse 27, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. It may, have been, it may have been the case that the Philippians were tempted to live in a certain way when the apostle was present there with them. Here's the apostle Paul. We better live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. But if he's absent... They thought that they could live in a different way. The apostles warning them against living with a fear of men or living only as in the presence of men as if you have to live this way only because I'm here. But the apostle is exhorting them don't live for me or before my face but live consistent with the gospel. The application of that, of course, is very, very broad. We'll come to see in following verses of the text a few of the specific applications that the apostle has in mind. But that calling itself is very broad and very general and it applies to all Christians in every walk of life and every circumstance. All called to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. Two who've made confession of faith tonight testified by their confession that this is their commitment. They're committed to living a new, holy, godly life. 
And the encouragement of the Word of God is continue to live in that way. Let your conversation, your conduct as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven be consistent with the gospel. The gospel that you know, that you love, that you've confessed tonight, let that motivate and let that guide your life in the midst of this world. That exhortation of the Word of God gives each of us opportunity to examine ourselves in light of it. As we prepare to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next Sunday, we do so in part by self-examination. In light of this Word of God, the question that we put to ourselves is this, am I living a life that's consistent with the Gospel? I love the Gospel. I confess the Gospel. I am comforted by the truth of the Gospel. Is my life lived in harmony with that? Is it the case that I live a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way when the minister is around, or when the elders are around, and then in a different way when they're absent? And then I can live a little bit differently or talk a little bit differently. But no, if the the minister or the elders are around, better not say that and better not act that way. Are we living a life in our homes consistent with the gospel? Husbands, do you love your wives in consistency to the gospel? And wives, are you a help to your husband in consistency to the gospel? Children, you obey your parents and respect them. Parents, do you care patiently for your children. Singles, you're living pure and holy in single life. In the workplace, are we honest, hardworking as employees and faithful as employers? The church of Jesus Christ and the good Christian school. In all of our life, in the midst of this world, with all that we come into contact with, are we living a life that's consistent with the Gospel? Is there harmony between the confession that we make and the life that we live? Where there's inconsistency, called to confess those sins, Repent of them, to turn from them, and come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ next Sunday in faith in Christ, trusting that in the Lord Jesus Christ there is forgiveness and covering for those sins, strength to live a holy, consistent life. Exhortation of the Word of God, again, is very, very broad and very comprehensive. Live in such a way that's consistent with the Gospel. 
One of the particular applications of the text is living consistent with the gospel in the church and with a concern for the church's unity. Apostle goes on to speak that way in verse 27. That ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. With that language, the Holy Spirit is using military language. It's the language of soldiers in an army who would be exhorted by their captain, for example, to stand fast, to be steadfast. Not turn back, but to press on and to persevere in battle. And then the language of a soldier is also what follows thereafter. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Fighting together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is always under attack under attack by false teachings with respect to doctrine and the truth of the Word of God and the heart of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and there are false teachings that strike at the the life of the child of God lived out of the gospel. We belong to the church militant. Church that's continually engaged in a spiritual battle against sin and against false teaching here below. What's important to remember is who the enemy is. Enemy is not another Christian. The enemy is the devil. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's the unbelieving world. It's false teaching and ungodly living. And it's not only important to remember what and who the enemy is, it's important to remember as well, what are we fighting for? The text says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the idea there is that the faith that is the gospel We're striving together for the gospel. There are some who apparently are very good at fighting against. They're very good at taking down and destroying everyone and everything else. But it seems as if they've forgotten what are they fighting for? The soldier who marches off to war, his concern is not only, well, who is, who is the enemy? Who do I have to go and fight against? But it lives in his heart. What am I fighting for? Well, back home is the, the woman that I love. Or there's my, my parents or my children. There's my homeland and the liberties that are there. So that when I go off and fight, that's what's in view. What am I fighting for to protect and to defend? important with respect to the church's spiritual fighting, that she shows herself not only able to, to look out and to destroy and to tear down that which belongs to the kingdom of darkness, but always 
remembering what am I fighting for? It's the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the spiritual well-being of others. And that's what lives in my soul. I'm not fighting just to fight. I'm not fighting with my own agenda. Remembering always, what do I fight for? We stand together, shoulder to shoulder, with one another here, and with God's people as they're found throughout history and throughout the world. Part of our joy in the confessions of faith of these two tonight is that by their confession they acknowledge publicly, we stand with you. We stand there shoulder to shoulder with you, with the rest of the church and with God's people of every age and found throughout the world. We're we're here together. We stand together. The cause of Christ. The cause of the gospel. We have that joy as a congregation and as the church of Jesus Christ tonight in these two confessions of faith. And the testimony that that is to us of the oneness and the unity of the church. And that's the main point that the Apostle is making here. Though he speaks in terms of, of standing fast and of striving together. The main point that he's making is conduct that's consistent with the gospel. Such that is concern for the unity of the church. Notice that in the language of verse 27. First of all, that phrase that ye stand fast, that you remain steadfast in one spirit. And you notice there that the translators of the KJV have spirit in lowercase. As they translated, their understanding of the text was That's synonymous with what follows and what it speaks of being one mind. That one spirit is the same as one mind in the mind of the translators. But there's good reason to translate that not as spirit in the sense of mind, but spirit as in the Holy Spirit. And to capitalize then that S. That's the case because the church has her unity In the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verses 3 and 4 tell us endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit to create the unity and the the oneness of the church. We stand fast together in the sphere of that one Holy Spirit. Spirit, that Holy Spirit who in saving us unites us to Jesus Christ, makes us to be citizens of his heavenly kingdom, is the same Spirit that dwells in all of the other citizens of that kingdom, and the Spirit, therefore, that binds us together. And then the text goes on to speak of that unity in that next phrase, With one mind, striving together 
for the faith of the gospel. Literally, the text speaks of one soul. And our soul has different faculties that we may speak of in relation to it. That includes the mind, as well as the will, and our emotions. To have one soul means that we share one mind with God's people. One mind with respect to the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and the consistent life that we're to live out of that. One will, one set of desires and purposes, one set of affections that we share with each other. How important for those who are soldiers in the army of Jesus Christ that we stand together. The apostle with that language is harking back again to the imagery of a citizen. You have citizens of a city, and when that city is being threatened, the citizens are called to take up arms to defend the the city. And how important that they stand together. The images of an army that's marching off to face the enemy, and they've all got their, their shields right next to one another so that there's this wall of, of shields as they march off to battle. Now imagine that army as it's marching off to battle. And you have one of those soldiers that goes backwards. And says, because no one pays any attention to me, why am I going to stand with the rest of them? And then you have another soldier in that line that breaks off in this other direction and says, I think you're all wrong. You're all going in that direction. Why don't you follow me? And I want to go this way. And then you have another soldier that's standing in that line. who takes out his, sheet, his sword. He swings that sword wildly all around him thinking that the ones standing next to him are the enemies. There's gaping holes in the line then. And you can imagine what the enemies think. They laugh. Look at these fools. They're marching off to battle and there's gaping holes in the line. They can't stand together for a moment. They're doing our work for us. church must stand together shoulder to shoulder one with another so that one doesn't withdraw from the line and say no one's paying enough attention to me so I'm going to to leave in self-pity and you don't have another one that says I'm going my own way I'm right, and this is the way I want to go, and follow me or not, but I'm headed that way. You don't have one then that takes out his sword and with no skill swings that sword wildly all around him so that soon he's got a whole pile of bodies all around him. But they're not the bodies of the enemy, they're the bodies of his fellow soldiers. 
church is going to press forward. She must strive together. Standing shoulder to shoulder in unity. Following chapter, chapter 2, we'll spell that out in even further detail. The oneness and the unity of the church. But to anticipate that now, the way of unity is the way of humility. Of lowliness. Me thinking more of another than I do of myself. Putting others, their needs before myself so that I'm willing to sacrifice my, my own self, my own wants, my own agenda for the sake of the church and the cause of Jesus Christ. It means showing patience, grace, others in the church of Jesus Christ because I know I'm the one who needs that the most. It means the humility of confessing my sins, forgiving those who've sinned against me. Seeking to dwell in peace with another where I might not have all of the same opinions, standing fast together with the truth of the gospel Understanding that I may not always have the same thought or opinion as another. But to honor and to respect and to show humility. How I deal with others who stand with me in the cause of Jesus Christ. It's a matter for careful self-examination. Lord's Supper form says we may not come to the table of the Lord in bitterness, in envy, in hatred toward our brother in the church. Do I live that way with any brother or sister in the church of Jesus Christ here? And before I come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to reconcile with that one. Confess my sins to that one. So that together, as one, truly viewing one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ with a a love together for the gospel and standing together for the cause of Jesus Christ, that unity may be expressed while partaking together of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The other specific application that this Word of God makes with respect to conduct consistent with the gospel with respect to courage in the face of opposition. That's verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. And then in verse 30, the apostle compares the situation in Philippi with what he had experienced when he was there in the city and what he now was experiencing while he was in Rome. 
having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Saints in Philippi were experiencing opposition, persecution. They were being hated for the sake of the gospel and the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, they stood together with the Apostle Paul in his sufferings. The temptation for them, according to 28, was to be terrified. And the language there is graphic. The word literally refers to a a spooked, skittish horse. So some horse that that's spooked by, by some wild animal or something that it senses to be a danger and it, and it gallops off in, in terror. That was the temptation for these saints facing that opposition to, to run like a spooked, skittish horse. The apostle says to them, you have no reason to be terrified. Take courage. Face the opposition with courage and conviction. That is a reality for us in the Christian life. Not only suffering generally with the trials and the hardships that God sends upon us, but also the suffering of persecution and opposition. For those who made confession of their faith tonight, that Something that stands as a reality. Having made confession of faith, it's now not, well, everything is easy. The hard part was making confession of faith. The reality is that the devil and the unbelieving world takes note of that and and hates that as opposed to the confession that you've made and will seek to do whatever they can to try and turn you from that confession. The reality of the Christian life is one of opposition. If we're not facing that opposition, we may well examine ourselves in that regard. Am I living in a way that's consistent with the gospel? So that others hear and they see and they know that I confess the truth and live the truth. It's also important to recognize that not all persecution comes in the form of threat to our loved ones or our life. Persecution may be that we're mocked and ridiculed and scoffed at in the college classroom or at our work. It might mean that we're ostracized, reviewed as being very strange and very weird and placed way over here because no one wants anything to do with us. It may involve setback or loss in our job or career pursuits. It may mean being shunned so that others don't want anything to do with us, avoid us, seem to to hate us. There is the reality that we face persecution or the cause of the gospel. And we also know the temptation to be terrified, to be so afraid of any opposition and any mockery that's directed toward us so that we're we're like a spooked horse that's ready to gallop off and to avoid any situation 
in which that may be the case. To avoid giving a witness or to, to weaken in living a Christian life so that others won't, won't know or give us a hard time for that. The Word of God says to us, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, positively take courage. Press on, live a life consistent with the gospel, unashamed and without terror before the adversaries. The text goes on to mention two reasons why we face that with courage. First of all, the rest of verse 28 says, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. That persecution is not an indication of the strength, the power, the victory of the adversaries and the weakness and the destruction of God's church. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a token. It's an indication. It's an evidence that continuing impenitently in that way, they will be destroyed. Positively, that opposition is in token and evidence of our salvation of God. If they persecuted Jesus Christ and hated Him, then we ought not be surprised that they persecute and hate we who belong to Jesus Christ. And the fact that we face that opposition for the sake of the gospel is an evident token that we belong. Jesus Christ. And the second reason that's mentioned in the text is in verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. The passage speaks of two things that are given, and that word given literally means graciously given. Two things graciously given. The one, faith. This is one of the clearest passages in the Word of God that indicate that faith is not something inherent in us, but that faith is a gift of God, graciously given. But not only is faith and the blessings of salvation that we receive by faith graciously given, also suffering is a gracious gift. To suffer for Christ is a gift of grace. It's a privilege. It seems to fly so contrary to how we would think. Suffer a gift to experience opposition and hatred is a privilege. What a privilege be so honored as to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the one who bled and died for us, who suffered a suffering that we will never have to suffer, the suffering of the wrath of God. What a privilege for us to suffer the loss of my name and my reputation or my comfort or ease or even my life. 
nothing in comparison to what Christ suffered, and a privilege, therefore, to suffer for him, gave himself for us. This is the encouragement for the church in the facing of opposition. Such suffering is an evident token of the destruction of our enemies and of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous privilege to suffer for Christ. Therefore, take heart, take courage, press on in the continued life consistent with the gospel. Gospel changes our perspective about life and death. The gospel frees us from self-centeredness and self-seeking and selfish pride that would tear at the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees us from the fear of men and the fear even of, of death at the hands of the enemies of Christ. The gospel reveals that our life in this world is one of lowliness and one of suffering. The shape of the Christian life is the shape of the cross. It's not a life of promotion and ease in the midst of this world, but it's one of of suffering as the way in which God leads us to glory. And those sufferings even Working for us, the scriptures say, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Suffering is the way in this life. Lowliness is the way. Not only does the gospel free us from selfishness and from the fear of others and the fear of death, but the gospel supplies unity in humility. And courage for the cause of Jesus Christ. Humility and courage are not polar opposites, but rightly understood, they go together. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can alone supply the humility to live together and to march together shoulder to shoulder. Courage to press on in the Christian walk. Beloved, let your conduct be consistent with the gospel. Standing fast in the one Holy Spirit. And with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven. Thankful for the gospel, for the good news of our salvation in Christ. Thankful for the gift of faith whereby we believe. Thankful, Father, as well for the privilege of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Humble us, deliver us from pride, give us good courage. Go forth in thy service and strong in thy might. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.
We pray that you were edified by the preaching of the gospel today. Please join us for worship if you are ever in the area. For more information about our church, beliefs, or worship times, please visit our website at prccrete.org.